You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 53. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I came, have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now for your spirit, for your help to understand a difficult passage, to understand a difficult passage that is difficult for our brains to understand, is perhaps even more difficult for our hearts to understand. Help us to trust you more. Help us to believe you more. Help us to um, depend more and more on the work of Christ on our behalf and trust in him as we wait. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Ladies, thanks for leading us tonight. It was, it was like the Indigo Girls up here tonight. Uh, Matt is in California, and so we are so thankful for where? Where did y'all go? You just, oh, there's Michelle. That just evaporated. Uh, thank you for leading us. That was great. I'm so thankful to have you all and to have the people that the Lord has given us. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to after the service. Uh, I think it's been two Sundays now 
that I have not taken an opportunity from this pulpit to say that my very favorite baseball team won the World Series for the first time in their... Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Applause. And there are many others who might be excited. I know many of you don't care about sports at all, and there are many of you who couldn't care less about baseball, uh, but it was an emotional moment for me. Uh, I was like, that Tuesday night, it was the day, November 1st, the day after Halloween, which will now be a holiday in our house for the rest of time. Uh, I was texting all night that evening, like with my dad, who took me to countless Ranger games throughout my childhood uh, in the heat. I was texting with friends, high school, elementary age friends, high school friends, college friends, who we all went to countless Ranger games together. And we were just texting because none of us thought we would ever see this happen. Uh, that night, I was like wired all night long. I think the game was over at like nine. It was probably like 12.45 or one o'clock before I went to bed that night. Like I, I couldn't sleep well after midnight. I was just watching all the celebrations, all the interviews, uh, all the social media posts that kept coming out of like people crying as they saw the last out or whatever. Uh, but I was wired. I could not sleep. And sleep is a funny thing. Sleep is a thing that our bodies need, we go into like this state of like defenseless unconsciousness. It's really strange. And without sleep, we die, but we usually don't sleep for lots of different reasons. For me that Tuesday night, it was because I was like overly excited. There were still like tons of adrenaline and lots of emotions and whatever else, uh, and I just couldn't sleep. Sometimes uh, more or more and more these days, teens are sleeping less than any generation because of cell phones, because of endless swiping. We don't sleep because of distraction. We don't sleep because of anxiety. We don't sleep because we're like reliving moments throughout this week or this day of conflict or tension at work. We don't sleep perhaps because we're scared. I'm sure we've all had nights where we like thought we heard something and we came to wake up, and it probably wasn't something, but what if it was? We've all been there, right? Uh, you can't go back to sleep. Your body is telling you that you need to be alert, so you can't go back to sleep. And this is actually what Jesus is getting at here in Luke 12, the need for alertness, the need to be awake and to be prepared and ready. Prepared and ready for what, though? That's the issue that we're going to get to, and why. Jesus is going to tell us, and we're, tonight we're going to think about this text here, this difficult text in three sections. It's all about waiting. And so he's going to tell us to be three things as we wait. Alert while waiting, faithful while waiting, and united while waiting. So alert, faithful, and united while waiting, while we await his return. Okay, first of all, alert while waiting. If you didn't read ahead this week and you just heard this text for the first time, you just heard Leslie read this out here, you might be thinking, wait, what? Was she reading, like, from the Bible? Uh, I was talking about this text with one of you earlier in the week, talking about, like, dismemberments and severe versus lighter beatings for servants, and one of you joked, well, that doesn't sound right, uh, especially because this are, these are, like, words from Jesus. Now, that was a joke. This is a tough passage, but it doesn't seem to sit well with us. It, but here's the thing about this passage. It's absolutely necessary for us and for all of humanity. First, some context. Where have we come, through, come from the last few weeks? If you're visiting with us, welcome. We've been working through the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, we've seen over the past few weeks, Jesus call all of his hearers to repentance, to hear of their need for a righteousness that comes from without them, from, from Jesus to transform them from the inside out. 
to then trust completely in God's good promises, to trust in his fatherly care, rather than trusting in the accumulation of more and more stuff and more and more comfort, or doubting God's care, which then brings anxiety. So he's saying, because all this is true in the last few weeks, don't worry, trust God. But what does it look like to trust God? Our passage tonight. No transition, just right after Jesus was talking about laying up treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, in verse 34. He seemingly takes a breath and just keeps going. Verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Like, not being anxious, not being the kinds of anxious people that he was saying don't be. Instead, literally, where he's saying stay dressed, they are to, Jesus' people are to gird their loins. This is a funny phrase from biblical times, but this is where if you have a long flowing tunic, you would like gather up all of the excess part, like tie it, push it through your legs, pull it back from around, and then tie it in a belt. Uh, You can do this, and the reason why you would do this is so that you are ready to move. You're ready to run, you're dressed for action. This is what Jesus' people, rather than being anxious, Do that. Dress for action and keep your lamps burning. These are pottery lamps, clay, but perhaps shaped like you might think of like Aladdin's lamp. Uh, It's the same purpose. There's like a basin with oil and then a long neck that comes out with a wick that goes out to the top that will constantly stay stay soaked in the oil. And then you light that on the end of the, the neck there, and then this can light your room. Perhaps not very well, but there too, Jesus' people stay ready for action and keep the lights on. But for what? Verse 36. Like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Now the master has been away at a wedding feast. While he's away, he's left the care of his house to his servants. They are to steward his house. They are to rule on his behalf well. They're like the babysitter, the person who is put in charge with all the authority of the parent, temporarily now given to others while the parent is gone. They rule the house, these servants do. The servants are not to be like, perhaps if you were the parent and you came home one night and the babysitter is like completely zonked out on the couch while the kids have full reign and rule over the house. They're running around like, like crazy. And what's more, the babysitter doesn't hear the knock on the door, doesn't hear the doorbell when you, the parent, returns home. The parents are left outside in the cold. The servants are not prepared for the return of the master. But we'll get to the ones who are not prepared. In the meantime, Jesus first commends those who are prepared. The master has been away at the wedding feast while the servants have kept good stewardship over the house. They have kept good watch for the return of the master. And so what happens? Verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them reclined at table, and he will come and serve them. The master's servants are now served by the master. What a reversal. What should we have expected when the master came home? Like, not much. Like, the master comes home, The servants open the door for him. He comes in and says, yep, 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 yep. Everything is in order. Good work, everyone. You did exactly what I expected you to do. Good job. Now, good night. 
And it might be very late even, verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third or he, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. The first watch is basically like 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The second watch is 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch is midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so he might be coming home in the very wee hours in the morning. Maybe he's coming home at like 2.30 a.m. when he's exhausted from a night of celebration and party. And what does he find when, the, when he gets to his house? The servants are waiting for him. He invites those whom, who, who, who cared for him, who cared for the business of his household, and he invites them into the same kind of celebration that he has just come from. And then he becomes the one to serve them. This is a kind and good master. He is showing himself of the utmost character, the kind of master that his servants probably enjoy longing for his return. They long for and expect him to return because of who he is. But here in this parable, he only blesses and he only commends and serves those who keep a perpetual watch, those who are ready and waiting, those who are ongoingly alert and awake for his return. But then kind of out of nowhere, Jesus changed the context and the characters of this parable. In verse 39, he says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Now, wait, what? Like, who's the thief now? Who's robbing who? It's like if the master had gotten like a tip-off that his house was going to be robbed at a certain time. This is like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone. He hears the wet bandits outside saying that they're going to come back around, say, 9 o'clock. And he's like, 9 o'clock. And he can't even get his macaroni and cheese eaten before he sees the clock. And it's time to get ready. This is my house. I have to protect it. And so if we're reading this for the first time, rightly assuming that Jesus, at this point, has perhaps been the one in this parable, this story, who is the master, the one coming, the one to return home and reward and serve his alert servants who have been ready for his return. Now, something strange has happened in this parable. Who is the thief? Jesus, it seems like if, if he knows his house, if he's the master and he knows that his house might get robbed, he wouldn't have like left his house alone in the first place. This, this is a strange thing happening here. But he explains in verse 40, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, Jesus isn't the master, he's the thief. All of this makes very little sense if we don't remember where we come from in chapter 12. Remember in verses 33 and verses 34, where Jesus said, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where is your investment? This is how we wrapped up thinking about last Sunday. Where is your treasure where is your hope and security found? In heaven? If so, then the return of Christ will be a day of great blessing. A day of great reward. A day of the consummation of joy. Of every place that you have put your investment in, you are getting now eternal reward. Eternal return on that investment. But if your investment in this life, just like the men who increased their barns and their storehouses, if our lives are merely about more accumulation, more stuff, more comfort, more leisure, more entertainment, more time for ourselves. If so, 
Jesus' warning, both last week and now here, that his return will come like a thief in the night. It will be a day of unexpected judgment, of destruction, and of loss. He will seemingly, kind of like a thief does, he will rob all that you have because you used the gifts that he gave you only for yourselves. You used him as your servant rather than you as his servant. You used him as a vending machine rather than God. And just stupidly, you put eternal hope in temporary things that inevitably will not last. You fool, Jesus said last week. This night your soul is required of you. What foolishness to put hope in things that will not last. And so the coming of Jesus can and will be a moment of simultaneous joy and blessing for those who are alert and ready for his return, the coming of the master who will serve those who are ready and prepared for his return, or it will, on the other hand, be a time of destruction and loss, not as a master coming to reward, but a thief coming to take all. And so why be ready? Because Jesus comes to expose in what we put our hope. Why be alert? just because we don't want to get robbed. I mean, there's no way like Kevin McAllister would have been able to fall asleep at 8.55 on that night, nor would he have been able to fall asleep at 10.05 if the wet bandits were like an hour late or something. He would still be just hopping on adrenaline. He's wired. But is fear of break-in, is fear of judgment and fear of just the loss of temporary things the only reason that we should be ready? for being prepared for the return of Christ? And what does it mean to be prepared and faithful in the first place? Should we, as prepared, alert, ready people waiting for the return of Christ, just like go home and just sit at the window, just looking out at the sky, just waiting for his return and do nothing with our lives? No. While we are to be alert while waiting, now secondly, we are to be faithful while waiting. Now this parable was confusing perhaps to us as we read it the first time. The parable was just as confusing for everyone who heard Jesus explain it on this first day. Who are the servants? How are they to serve their master? This whole master thief thing. And so as is often the case with Jesus' parables, the disciples have some questions and they need some clarifications. And so in verse 41, Peter said, hey, Lord, um, are you telling this parable for us? or for all. Essentially, he's asking, are, are you telling us this for us, your disciples? Are the servants in this parable us, your disciples, and you want us to take seriously our, our service in your house? Or was this more broad? Was this story about like all of Israel? Essentially, Peter wants to know, Jesus, were you calling out us, or were you calling out like all of Israel? Us or us? To which Jesus more or less says, Peter, now once upon a time, and Peter's got to be like, oh, come on, Lord. Like, I just, just to answer the question, and he's got another story. But Jesus is like, no, 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 stay with me. In verse 42, he says, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Jesus has now taken this steward babysitter imagery up an even further notch. Now, here we've got a master who has left his house for an even longer time. He leaves the master in charge, or the manager in charge. The manager, presumably in this day and age, a household slave, 
is to give rations of food to all of the other slaves and servants in the household. He has been put over the entire household to not only continue the master's business, but to care for the household's needs. And so, verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. This is very similar to the parable of the talents coming in Luke 19, where the servant who invests the money that was given to him by the master, he then is given more responsibility. He who has will be given more. Whereas the servants who are not interested in caring for the growth of the master's business, uh, everything from them will be taken. And so the master actually expects faithful work from his people in his absence. Just because the master is not in the room does not mean that he does not care. Or it doesn't mean that the master is unaware or ignorant of the work that he has delegated to his servants. Now, I'm tempted to start like bringing in, bringing all of this into our lives and start making some application, but let's get through the alternative first. Jesus commends the servant who has cared for the needs of the household and cared for the, the business of the household, but what are the alternatives to that? Rather than giving an example of what, uh, rather than just giving one example of what unfaithful service looks like in comparison to this faithful service, he gives three. He gives three different kinds of unfaithfulness and some alternate reality. We had the faithful servant here first and some alternate reality. Now, this servant didn't care for the household. He didn't give out the rations for the rest of the servants. This man starts thinking, wait, my master is delayed. He should be back, but he's not yet back, or he's, he's late in coming, so what does he do? Party. There's no accountability. He wasn't here when he was supposed to be, so this now is time for me. He eats, he drinks, presumably from the rations of the rest of the servants, he gets drunk, and instead of serving the other servants, he beats them. And so what does the master do when the master comes home perhaps a day late, perhaps a week late, perhaps a month late, and he finds that the manager has used all of the master's resources just for himself. When he has stolen some of the master's resources allocated for others for himself, when he has abused and mistreated the others in the master's household, how does he respond? With judgment. In what seems to us, like a barbaric overreaction, but wouldn't in any other time or society until about maybe 200 years ago in cultures in the West, the unfaithful manager is violently executed. He's essentially dismembered. He's thrown out of the house with the rest of the unfaithful, with the rest of those who are opposed to the master's house. Now I say that this wouldn't seem like an overreaction to most cultures because we should this is the thing that we should understand about parables that Jesus is telling stories about everyday life that all of his hearers understand. He's speaking in their terms and talking about their vocations and talking about everyday experiences that they would know and expect. Every component doesn't necessarily have to have some corresponding spiritual element. Jesus is telling a story about a hypothetical master, and his hearers would likely say, oh, yeah, that checks out. The master came home, and he found one of his servants who he, whom he put in charge, in, in charge over the entire house and he's used all of the master's resources for himself and he's abused and beaten the other servants in the house. Oh yeah, that checks out. That's a death penalty. That's what would happen. 
So that's one example of unfaithfulness, using the master's resources and his delegated authority to selfishly advance the self at the expense and the abuse of others. Another example is verse 47. And that servant, a second servant, or a servant in a now third alternate reality, who knows the master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will will receive a severe beating. Here, this guy knows what the master wants, but then just didn't do it. He didn't necessarily do anything contrary to the master's will. He just sat around, just doing nothing in passivity, whether it was laziness or whether it was fear of rejection, fear of rejection from the other servants. He didn't want to make them angry for like telling them what to do, what the master wants, whatever the reason. The master returns home to see if the checklist of the to-dos has been accomplished, and none of it is done. The servant receives a severe beating. Again, harsh to our years, but to this first century audience, yeah, that checks out. That, he, that's what was coming. But then a third servant in verse 48, the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. This guy wasn't given explicit instructions from the master of what he wanted while he was away, but a reasonable reasonable person might guess, might intuit what the master wanted. This guy didn't do what the master wanted, and so even even if he should have known better and done the exact same action as the action of the first guy, or of the second guy who did, didn't do what he was supposed to do, but he did know, he receives a light beating. And so what's the point of all of this? Second half of verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so what's all this about? And what does this have to do with us today? Now, on the one hand, The later parable of the talents in chapter 19 is in the context of Jesus' return to Jerusalem. So parables like these of the return or the arrival of the Son of Man is very much setting up the coming of Jesus and finding wicked servants working in the master's house, abusing and taking advantage of other servants. This is absolutely setting the stage for Jesus' cleansing of the temple. This is like building tension and building tension. We have parables like this of the the arrival of the master, and then he comes, and what does he find in the household of God? Wickedness, abuse. The Lord God Almighty approaches Zion, and he will bring judgment over the wicked workers of Israel. That's on the one hand. On the other, we can't forget that among the hearers of this parable that Jesus is telling here in Luke 12 is none other than Judas himself. The Pharisees and lawyers and scribes were in the larger crowds of Jesus' teaching just before this, and now here's one, Judas, whom Jesus in John 6 calls a devil. Judas is living and working closely with Jesus. He was set apart and delegated by Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, with power and authority to, like the manager or the steward or the babysitter, to work and to operate in Jesus' name and authority. And so this, like another parable about keeping your lamps burning in Matthew 24, which is absolutely about Jesus' second coming, is to warn everyone who hears for alertness, for faithfulness. To whom? Well, to anyone who has been given any role of spiritual authority, of leadership, of service. 
He is warning Pharisees. He is warning lawyers. He is warning apostles. He is warning disciples. He is warning elders. He is warning deacons. It is a high calling that God gives away to his stewards to lead and to serve in the business of the household. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, James says in James 3.1, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. There are religious leaders, even some who call themselves Christian leaders, who ignore what God wants, ignore what God has said. In fact, not just ignoring what God wants and has said, but is leading God's people in the exact opposite, teaching them to ignore God's clear commands about marriage, about sexuality, about racism, about abortion, the celebration and the worship of the self above all else, even God help them, those who abuse those under their care. These are certainly all categories that are emotionally charged and for many deeply personal and even painful. But Jeremiah and other prophets have plenty to say against religious leaders who tell people that they are at peace with God. Peace, peace trying to soothe consciences when there is absolutely no peace. There are still other leaders who are lazy, indifferent, afraid, don't want to do the master's business, or there those others who perhaps don't even know the master's business. And so Jesus is warning those over his household that it is imperative that you, Christian leaders, Know and take seriously your role and lead my people well in the most difficult issues of the day. And then, for what it's worth, while we are still 100% committed to expositional preaching, the slow preaching through books of the Bible, trusting that God knows what we need rather than putting it on me, like to come up with three or four or five, like 10 or 12 week topics to think through every time or every year. While that's true, expositional preachers throughout the centuries have taken time to address the theological issues of their contemporary day. Preachers of the fourth century were regularly preaching about the doctrines of God. Is God triune? What does that mean? Preachers of the fifth century were regularly preaching about the doctrine of Christ. Is Jesus divine? Is Jesus human? If so, what does that mean? Preachers throughout the Reformation routinely preached on grace, salvation, of the nature of the church. What is the church? Who is the church? How can we be sure that we are the church? And today, I think the most fundamental question that we are being asked of today is, what is a human? You've regularly heard the question, what is a woman? Which is an important question to ask, but even that is downstream from a bigger question of anthropology, of what is a human being? And so next April... The, the week after Easter, we're going to take probably six weeks to think about this question, what is a human, under several different themes. That, what does it mean that we have bodies in the first place? Do our bodies matter to who we are? Does it matter that God created us male and female? Is there a difference? And if so, what? Is that good or bad? Can we, as humans, use our bodies and our societies to oppress others? Can we be oppressed by others? What should our response be? As humans with bodies, what does this mean for sexual desire and sexual expression? What does this mean for marriage and for singleness? What does this mean as parents and as children? Now, all of these things sound like the 
culture war minefield that might just be best to be avoided. But the minefield has come to us. Our TVs, our cell phones, our social media feeds, our schools, our educational institutions, our governments have brought the minefield with an unbelievable speed which seems to be changing and then completely changing again every six to 12 months or so. So hopefully, by using God's word as a lamp unto our feet, we can find the pathway out or at least find the pathway to navigate through the minefield. So all of this is true. And we as your pastors want to take seriously the high weight, the heavy burden of leading you all well, his wonderful and faithful sheep as we follow our shepherd together. And while all that's true, all of this passage has plenty for all of us as well. You should not think. Maybe you thought, wow, this is a really scary text, but then, all right, I think Nathan thinks that this is about just church leaders. So, whoo, I'm off the hook. And I needed to be off the hook after a week because last week about anxiety and money and stuff, that was a tough one. So wake me up in a few weeks when there's something that applies to me again. But while pastors and shepherds in the New Testament are held to higher account for the leading of the household of God, who over and over and over again throughout the New Testament are those working in the household of God? Every Christian. In Ephesians chapter 4, pastors, shepherds are to equip who? The saints for what? The work of the ministry. All of us working in the household of God. We are all individual Christians bought with a price and no longer belong to ourselves but to God. Our lives matter. And while we are absolutely saved by grace alone, through faith alone, it is Christ's obedience on the cross alone that brings us to God and not our obedience to God that brings God to us. Grace does not end accountability. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us, Christians, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul is saying God has entrusted to we Christians the very mysteries of God, and we should steward those mysteries well and faithfully. With the treasure of God that he has given us, we must steward the treasure well, not using it for ourselves but for others, not ignoring its commands but growing in obedience. Obedience in knowing God through his word and prayer. Obedience in trusting God's promises more and more. Obedience in using our bodies for his glory and our time for the building up of the household of God. Because here's the thing with warning passages. If there is nothing at stake, if there is no risk, then there is actually no reason to warn. Now again, to quote John MacArthur for like the 50th time up here, if I could lose my salvation, I would. If it were up to me, just in faithful obedience to earn my salvation, I would, or to keep my salvation, I would absolutely lose it. And so it is good and right that we ongoingly sing things like, when I fear my faith will fail, it is Christ who holds me fast. Just as we sang tonight, yet not I, but through Christ in me. This whole parable here is setting up a time near the end of Luke's Gospels, or Luke's Gospel, where Jesus' closest followers will not be awake. He has asked them to stay alert, and they can't do it. 
They're asleep. They are not alert. They sleep through Jesus' temptation and his overwhelming obedience that he is going through in that moment that he can then legally give to them by, by their faith. Their sin, their laziness, their lack of alertness for his. His righteousness, his holiness, his obedience now given to them. But the thrust of the New Testament, after coming to this saving faith in the work of Christ on our behalf, is to then, what? It might be to say this, to keep ourselves in the keeping love of God. To abide in Christ. And what will happen? He will abide in you. When we find ourselves slowly but surely detaching ourselves from the vine, just barely holding on to the promises of Christ, just barely holding on to his body, the church. We find ourselves, what, that we might actually be all the way detached. And what good is a brown leaf that has detached itself from the tree and is now just blowing down the street on its own? There's no life in it. There's no security in it. That what we thought we had, that what we thought we believed was never actually true. But when we are regularly gathering with God's people, you can only backslide so much in six days. When we are growing in slow and perhaps even and often unobservable growth. When we are building up the household of God together, serving the other servants and being served by them, growing up together as one body into him, our head, the Lord Jesus, what do we find? Not earned righteousness, not a fear or lack of assurance, but the opposite. When we are growing in obedience, when we are growing in the life of God's people together, there is assurance, there is confidence, there is growth, there is faithfulness. And this is Jesus' point in our final point, this final paragraph, that if we are to be alert while waiting, if we are to be faithful while waiting, we are now lastly and very briefly to be found united while waiting. United while waiting. Now you may think that I've titled this last point here incorrectly. Just let me read a couple of these first few verses here again, starting in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So not united while waiting, but perhaps we should have titled this last section here, divided while waiting. But Jesus here is continuing the same kind of preaching that John the Baptist was preaching in chapter three that Jesus himself brings the winnowing fork, the fork that is used to like grab the usable wheat grain, grains and to throw everything up, and then the unusable chaff, the, the, the husks get blown away. He is separating. Jesus' family, the household that he is building, is unlike the one in the old covenant of Abraham and Moses, that of ethnic and biological families who share Abraham's DNA. The household that Jesus is building is a new spirit, spiritual family who share Abraham's faith. Jesus gives several different biological family relationships. Father to son, mother to daughter, father-in-law, son-in-law, and whatever else. He's giving all of these kinds of 
biological family relationships that Jesus has come to bring division to. How by his coming baptism, a baptism that will bring great distress to him until it is accomplished, a baptism of death to life that his new family will join him in of death to life. Not merely of having the right covenantal parents or grandparents, but being united together in his baptism. He isn't prescribing that we dishonor our biological families or bring otherwise unnecessary division, but that his coming, his arrival, and his future return fundamentally changes and shifts loyalties. Faithful service to the master redefines household relationships. We aren't just loyal to our tribes, those who will provide safety to me because there is strength in numbers. We're not faithful to our biological tribes, our ethnic tribes, our cultural tribes, or even our political tribes. Our first and, for, first and foremost, for, foremost loyalty is to what? Not our own safety, but to Christ, who then shapes and forms our unity with the rest of his people who are doing the same. His body, you all, the rest of the worldwide body of Christ as we await his imminent return. Texts like these come as warnings. Well, Jesus' major emphasis in this entire teaching and moving into next week's text, which is kind of picking up right where we're leaving off tonight, all of this is about Jesus' coming arrival into Jerusalem, the coming arrival of the Master. Now that Jesus has come into Jerusalem and for the world, though, the question then becomes for us, well, he has also said that he will come again. Not just as king over Jerusalem, but as king over the cosmos. And so implicit is the question for us in texts like these is, will we be his united people? Who will you be? Who will we be? Will you be alert and prepared or asleep and unprepared? Will we live as if we are living in the light and ready for his return? Or will we like put our fingers in our ears and pretend that it is dark, not assuming that he's coming at all or because he's late or delayed or not coming uh, when I thought he would, that now I can just do whatever I want. There's no responsibility. No, grace does not end accountability. Will we be faithful or unfaithful? Are we prepared for the master's return or not? Now, fear of hell and judgment, this isn't our primary motivation for trusting in the Lord Jesus. Infinite joy in his, his presence should be our main motivation because God has created us, because God has designed us for great, the greatest amount of joy to be found in him. This is what we pursue, but separation from the triune God is certainly in the picture. The master will return, and there is a separation coming. And so one pastor has asked, have you considered that the warning of divine wrath may be God's sweetest grace to you? That he warns so that we might respond. That he warns that we might hear. It's a sweet grace that he tells of what will happen. 
But right alongside the warning is a call for preparation. What does it mean to be prepared? And I don't mean some Catholic understanding where we had better all confess our sins regularly and ongoingly because you never know when you're going to bite the dust. Or that you have to have some priest present before you die. But instead, being prepared is watch, therefore. The Lord will return. He is coming. Are you ready? Are you expectant? Are you excited about the return of Christ? Or are you seemingly, perhaps even you might not say this out loud, but kind of dreading it? Why are you dreading it? What are those things that cause you concern, doubt, anxiety? We have another text that continues this theme next week, as well as four weeks of Advent beginning in three weeks to further develop this theme of waiting, of preparedness, of expectation, and of hope. But Jesus is calling us into the Father's household, into the Father's business. Not out of threat, not to create anxiety or fear in us. You better do his work or else. But an invitation into the joy and into the life that we were created for. What human would not want to be excited for the return of the master who then serves us? What a God, what a master who has lived for us and died for us that we might find the abundance of joy that he comes to give. This is what we were created for. So be alert, be prepared, faithfully work. United we would work. Keep watching individually and together. And even so, we said already tonight, and we're going to continue to say for the next six weeks or so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of righteousness, of holiness. This is actually a good thing, a comforting thing to us, that you will not let injustice go forever, that you will not let wickedness be used by people against other people forever, that you are judge and we do not have to be judge over all that is wrong in this world. We trust you. We also thank you that because you are a God of holiness that you have not done with us what we deserve, that you have not left us separated before you, but that you have moved towards us in grace and patience that you, Lord Jesus, have lived and died for us, that we who were once your enemies might be your friends, that we who were once um, separated orphans might be your adopted sons and daughters. Help us to live as if this were true. It is true, Lord. We want to believe these things. Help us to know it, to experience. Help us to live as those who are alive. Help us to live as those who are in the light. We long for and expect your return. And so even so, we pray these things. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.